0: You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now, let's begin today's message. We're going to be looking today at Acts chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. I'll read to verse 17. We're going to actually go through the, uh, the rest of the chapter today. And I look at it in two sections, and you'll see that in a moment. So we'll begin reading in verse 12. I'll read to verse 17, as is my normal way of teaching. I'll give you a couple of things to remind you of how we got to this place, then we'll move into our study. So beginning at verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would uh, would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it's a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things." And so we have already noted that Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's come to a city called Corinth. Now, let me remind you a little bit about this city called Corinth. Corinth was a beautiful harbor city. It was around 40 miles. If you were looking at the map and you saw Athens, it's about 40 miles south of Athens. And I had mentioned to you that it was a commercially prosperous city. It was very well-known at that time. It was filled, filled with, uh, with various individuals who were artists, we'll say. There were people who worked with stone and metal. It had a good number of orators and a lot of philosophers. It hosted the Isthmian Games. It was an athletic and musical competition, if you will. They were held the year before and the year after the Olympic Games, and they were well-known and well-attended. Corinth had a, a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, And she was associated with love, lust, beauty, pleasure, passion, and sex. She had a thousand religious prostitutes who nightly seduced tourists, sailors. The city was well known for its sexual degradation, it was known for licentiousness and debauchery. And in the midst of such moral degradation and idolatry, a a church had been planted. Now we know that Paul was an evangelist, we know he was a missionary and he was stirred up to preach, and the Spirit had compelled him to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is Messiah. And we saw how he was reasoning and preaching, and the people were not open to him, and they were not open to what he was saying. So they opposed him, they resisted him, they blasphemed, they rejected the gospel. So that prompted him to concentrate on the Gentiles who were open, and so he began to minister next door in the next door to the synagogue. Now, Justus was there. He's a Gentile, and he came to faith in Christ, and after this, the synagogue ruler Crispus also came to faith. That was the planting of the church in the city of Corinth. So in spite of the fruit that was being produced, Paul had become afraid. The Jews were in opposition, doing whatever they could to silence him. So he had been stoned and dragged out of Lystra and been left for dead. He had been severely beaten with rods in Philippi and thrown into jail. And antagonistic Jews are now following him from city to city, and they're stirring up mobs against him. Now, when you look at at Paul, we know through Scripture that he was not a physically strong man, and we also know that he had to deal with health issues. It was because of an illness that he first preached to the Galatians, according to Galatians 4.13. In Galatians 4.15, the second portion of that scripture, he said, I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So it tells us that he had something, a disease of some sort, some difficulty with this vision. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10 That verse records what his opponents said of him, and what they said of him was simply his bodily presence is weak. So, he was unimpressive, he was physically ill, and one ancient writer described him as a small man with crooked legs, so he wasn't very fast. I'll let you think about that for a minute. Now, Paul was constantly on the move, the stress and fatigue of ministry was constant. He wasn't a young man. It's estimated that he was around 50 years of age at this point. The pressures and the threats had caused him to become afraid. And it was at this time that the Lord had spoken to him in a vision and had encouraged him. And he had said to him, no one one will attack you to hurt you. I have many people in this city. There are many hungry for salvation. There are many who are open to you preaching to them and that he did. And we looked at that, how he, he remains for 18 months in the city of Corinth. And that's where we pick up our story. So moving into verse 12, it says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Now, this gives us a date for what uh, what is taking place. It's somewhere around the year 53 A.D. Greece was divided into Macedonia, Macedonia was in the north, and Achaia was in the south. So when speaking of Achaia, the word speaks both of Macedonia as well as the south, which was called Achaia proper. So that's another way of saying that this was a man who was ruling in that area from Macedonia throughout Achaia. And it says at that time, verse 12, that the Jewish opposition began to rise up against Paul, and tried to get him to kick Paul out of the city. And so this is what they say in verse 13, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, it seems that they're appealing to Roman law, and they're not speaking of Jewish law, and that's not a new charge. As a matter of fact, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we saw in chapter 16 that that was something alleged in the city of Philippi. In Acts 16, 20 and 21, it says, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or to observe. And so they're saying this is a crime. Why is that? Well, because Rome had banished Jews from the city, and this Jew is here causing problems. You see, Judaism was tolerated, but Paul was bringing a new religion, something they didn't recognize and so, as they're making this, this charge against him, Paul wants to speak and respond. But notice verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, that there would be reason why I should bear with you. So, he interrupts him. Paul is about to give a formal declaration. I want you to notice something. This is something you might not notice if you simply read this. Notice again in verse 14, it says when Paul is about to open his mouth, well... We had seen that phrase to open his mouth earlier. We had seen that when Philip had preached to, a, to an Ethiopian eunuch, and we had read how that this eunuch had, had left Jerusalem, was on his way home, and, and Philip had seen him reading scripture and asked if he understood what he was, what he was saying. And in Acts 8:34 and 35, the, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So we know that Paul was about to preach the Lord. He was about to proclaim the gospel. He wasn't just speaking. He was about to preach. But before he could begin to preach, notice Gallio cuts him off. Gallio in verse 14 says, if it's a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, so he's making it clear, I'm not here to judge your religious differences. I'm a civil judge. My responsibility is what he's saying. My responsibility is related to criminal activity, wrongdoing, wicked crimes. And he, he actually says that to us, wrongdoing or wicked crimes. Wrongdoing is open crimes like strong-arm robbery or, or physical assaults. That's, that's what would be referring to uh, when he says wrongdoing, wicked crimes well, the way that's phrased, that means that there, there are hidden crimes like fraud or shoplifting or, or vandalism, thinking, thinking of those kinds of things where something's happening, but it's not done openly. He's just basic, basically making it clear that my, my role as a government official doesn't include making judgments on religion. I'm not an expert, is what he's saying, on the subtlety of and nuance of religious philosophy. In other words... I have little regard for your religious beliefs. I have little regard for what I consider superstitious beliefs." That sounds a lot like Pontius Pilate when Jesus was standing before him and Jesus was speaking to him, and and Pontius Pilate's found in John 18, verses 37 in the first portion of verse 38, when Pilate said to Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And Jesus went on to say, everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. Pilate, as a government official, simply says, what is truth? And so what you have here is something similar to what Pilate had said. Galileo's saying the same thing. I'm not a religious judge. I'm not schooled in nor interested in the subtleties of your belief system. I don't know the difference between Jews and this new religion called Christianity. You are petty and you are religious and your trivial arguments basically get on my nerves. I'm not a philosopher. I don't care about religious difference. You notice that he's irritated that they brought this up in the first place. This isn't a civil matter. As long as it doesn't provoke an actual crime, You have differences in belief and opinion, and you have the right to hold to those things, but I'm not interested in them. If a civil law has been violated, I would have reason to listen, but no law has been broken. So he's making it clear that the government has no role in determining religious beliefs, has no role in interrupting them or making judgment on them. The government doesn't. The Roman government Government didn't, obviously, here in the 21st century. Our government does it. It has no role in determining which one is right. And that's what he's saying here. You haven't broken a civil law. There hasn't been any kind of outward crime or anything you're being accused of as being, you know, a hidden crime. I'm not here to put up with your nonsense is what he's saying. Notice verse 15, if it's a question of words and names and your own law, Now, it's interesting how he breaks down the argument. If it's a question of words and names in your own law, words speaks of the message of the gospel. Names speaks of Jesus, the Christ, also Messiah. Your own law, did he fulfill all that the law of Moses spoke regarding salvation? It's a question of words, names, and your own law. It's a question of preaching the gospel, of if Jesus Christ is a Messiah, and Moses is lot. that is something you have to do with, that isn't something I have to do with, verse 15, so I don't want to judge. Of, be the judge of such matters. I'm not interested in your argument, and I'm not qualified to make any kind of judgment. Settle this yourselves. Now again, on the one hand, a civil judge must judge impartially. As a human being, though, He's closing his door of opportunity to hear the gospel. He could have heard Paul. Paul could have proclaimed, and Paul was willing, and I want you to see that. Paul was about to open his mouth. Paul would take whatever opportunity he was given to share the gospel. And he was about to proclaim Christ as Messiah. Messiah. It's an argument. Jesus wanted, uh, rather, Paul wanted to speak of words and names and, and the law of Moses. He wanted to. He wanted to reason before this this civil uh, magistrate in order that he might clearly present the claims of Christ to show that Jesus Christ did fulfill the regulation of the law, that he is the name above all names, and the gospel message could be preached. But he's saying, I'm a a civil judge. I'm not interested in hearing any arguments concerning your religious superstitions. I don't want to hear these things. You need to get out of here. As a matter of fact, verse 16 says, uh, he drove them from the judgment seat. I don't want any part of your religious quarrel. Paul didn't even have to defend himself. Now, when it says he drove them Remember, there were, I had mentioned this to you before, uh, when Paul was beaten by, by the rods that he had been beaten with, he was beaten by those who were referred to as lictors. They were the ones who, who uh, would do the beating and all. So when this says he drove them from the judgment seat, he actually gave permission or orders to these people who had these rods to drive them physically out. And those who were slow were beaten and driven out. When he said, get out of here, if you didn't move, you were hit. And off they went. Well, that wasn't enough. Notice verse 17. All the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Gallio took no notice of these things. So, Sosthenes received a flogging by the Greeks who were tired of the problems Sosthenes had replaced a man named Crispus we'd seen earlier as the chief officer in the synagogue. He had more than likely been the one who instigated the situation, and he was taken care of. What's interesting, and I'll point this out, Sosthenes may have later become converted. He may have. Why? Well, he's mentioned later in 1 Corinthians. Again, this is the church at Corinth. And the name Sosthenes, and there are many commentators that say this would have been the same man, but he's mentioned later in 1 Corinthians in the introduction in chapter 1, verse 1, where it reads, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So he may have some, he may have had, um, the beating may have been inflicted upon him. And he considered things, and it's very, very possible that he came to faith in the one that he had been rejecting. But as this is taking place, notice verse 17, Gallio took no notice of these things. In other words, he allowed it to take place more than likely as a warning to others. There was at one time, and the United States has drifted a bit from this in, in many ways, understandably, and in other ways, not, not, not so much so, is that they would immediately deal with something as a warning. If somebody saw that justice was immediate, punishment occurs now, not next week, not next month, not through a lot of trial lawyers coming up and arguing, crime, would have been, crime was, was reduced because people saw that they were serious about enforcing law. And so they beat him, and the people saw that Regarded that as a warning, and said to themselves, "I don't want this to take place to me." And so he took no notice of these things. Verse eighteen. So Paul still remained a good while, and he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Syncrea, for he had taken a vow. After a year and a half or so, it was time for Paul to leave for ministry and. Priscilla and Aquila, his dear friends, went with him on the journey. They went to a place called Sincrea. When you look at a map, you have the city of Corinth and about 40 miles or so or less, probably a little bit less, to the east is a port. And that port is called Sincrea. And he takes a journey. He's about to leave from Corinth and go across to a city called Ephesus, which is on the coast of Turkey. So he's going to the east about 240 mile journey. It says while he was in Sincrea that he shaved his head because he had made a vow. Now the specific vow is not mentioned, but he completed it, and in doing so, you shave your head. And so there he goes looking like a gangster to Ephesus. (laughs) In verse 19, he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I'll return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And so we're seeing him on his journey, and he's coming to a place called Ephesus. Let me share a little bit about Ephesus. I've been to Ephesus more than once, beautiful ancient city. It was the main city in what is what was then called Roman Asia. It's in Turkey. It was a major marketplace in Asia located on the Kaster River on the Aegean Sea. By ancient standards, it was a huge city. It had a population of over 250,000. It was the main center of Greek culture as well as heathen idolatry. It had well-paved streets, it had public buildings, a scientific center, a medical center, a library, and a theater that is still in operation. It's been restored, it's in operation, and that theater seated 56,000 people. So it was huge. Ephesus was famous for its school of medicine, its poets, its philosophers, its, its fashion, as well as its idolatry. It had the Temple of Diana. The Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high. It had 127 marble pillars, 36 of which were overlaid with gold and jewels and housed an image of the multi-breasted fertility goddess. Its economy was built selling images of Diana, soothsaying, and the practice of magic. And once again, Paul, as has become his practice, first goes to a synagogue in order that he might preach. And so it says that he left, in verse 19, he left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. And verse 19, he entered the synagogue, and once again, he reasoned with the Jews. His love for his Jewish brethren drove him to reach out once again. And though he had continuously been rejected, he desired to see them saved. Now, in verses 20 and 21, they asked him to stay a longer time with them, but he didn't consent. They're open to the gospel, and that is reflected later in his ministry because a church is going to be birthed. Godly elders are going to arise. Timothy is going to be its pastor, and Paul is going to write a powerful letter to these Ephesians. But later, it would become a a letter from Jesus. It would receive a letter from Jesus because we know Ephesus is mentioned in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And when Jesus speaks concerning this this church in its latter latter days, he says that you've done a lot of great things, but I find one thing against you. You have left your first love. You've left it. You wandered away. And so this is a city that had a very powerful church. It's it's a city that that received a letter from Paul as well as one from Jesus himself, and This is a a church that became very famous in history. So they asked him to stay, but he wouldn't. He said, I have to go to Jerusalem. Now, I want to stay. I wish I could stay, but the Holy Spirit is leading me to leave. I want to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and I want to meet with the leaders of the church there. And so that's what he does. So it says in verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted uh, the church, he went down to Antioch, and after he had spent some time there, he departed and went and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And so, once again, he lands in Caesarea, and he greets the church. He's in Israel, and Paul preached, church has been born, rather Peter had preached in A church had been born, so he goes there to minister. He went to Antioch, and that completes his second missionary journey. Verse 23 says he spent some time there. He rested for some time. Now he departs on his third missionary journey. He's traveling northeast, and he's ministering and strengthening to uh, the various churches. Now, verse 24 through 28, I kind of was hurrying to get to this because this is is a portion of Scripture that speaks to my heart. I want to read to you. Verse 24. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside. And explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. We're introduced in a very powerful way to a young man by the name. Of Apollos. Apollos is a very impressive young man. He has a very, what we would say today, a very powerful resume. As you look at him, you have an opportunity, uh, opportunity of, of seeing what, what I've re- to, re, uh, referred to as the training of a man of God. This man had advantages And this man had great potential. But who is he? Well, first, Luke tells us he was Jewish. He was born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, during this time, there were about a million Jews living in Alexandria, and these Jews spoke Greek, and they had the Jewish scriptures translated into Greek. So, with such a large population, it was home to an enormous synagogue, So like Paul, he could communicate both the Jew and Gentile alike with equal effectiveness. And that's a tremendous advantage in ministry. If you have the ability to minister in a cultural way to more than one culture, that's a tremendous advantage in ministry. And he had that ability. He could speak to the Jew as a Jew. But culturally, you could speak to the Gentile understanding their ways, understanding the things that made for their particular culture. That is a tremendous advantage in ministry. If you're a bicultural individual, you can speak to the people that you have an identity with, an affinity to. But you also can speak to those who may not be of your same uh, background, but in terms of the Capacity to communicate from a cultural standpoint, you can do that, and that was him. So he was able to minister both to Jew as well as to Gentile. A second thing you see about him is he was eloquent in speech. When it says he was eloquent in speech, it means he was skilled. He was skilled in literature, the arts, history, as well as speaking. He was rational, he was wise, he was impressive, and he was respectable. Those are advantages. You need to remember Alexandria was the second most important city in the Roman Empire. It was an educational center. It, it trained students in literature and philosophy. That meant he had the background to engage intellectuals in religion. And so that's a tremendous advantage. Remember that uh, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said that, that not many wise, according to the standards of this age, are being saved. They looked at the Jews and looked at the uh, preaching of the gospel as being something that was that, that made no sense. We saw that in Athens when Paul had spoken concerning Jesus and the resurrection and how they, they began to scoff. They said this, we'll hear you some other time. We're not really that interested. Well, this was a man who could communicate to them in, in a language that they would understand. He was able to communicate to them with an eloquence because the, the Greeks would really regard the one who could speak well. When they spoke concerning Paul, they said he doesn't speak impressively but this young man did, and when he would speak, they would listen. He was eloquent, and they liked it. He was rational. He was wise. He was impressive, and they could respect him. A third thing we see about him, he was culturally and socially sophisticated. Again, this is not some backwoods village. This is a cosmopolitan city, a huge city. And it's filled with a variety of cultures. Sometimes when you think of, of countries and all, you might, you might think, if you haven't traveled much, or perhaps haven't seen that much, as I I, I, I would say, if you said to me, for example, uh, if you said Barcelona, Spain, I'll use that as an example. Prior to my ever going to Barcelona, I didn't know what to think about it, to be honest with you. I thought, well, it's just a city, it's in Spain, a lot of Spaniards. Well, that's what it would be, right, It's Spain. And then I went for the first time. And I was surprised, I'll be honest with you. I was very surprised at Barcelona. Why is that? Because it's multicultural. Because when you're in the city of Barcelona, you'll see people from Africa. you see people from the Middle East. You'll see people from around the world. It's very cosmopolitan. So there's a mixture of people and there's a mixture of beliefs in Barcelona. But when you first think of it, you might think of it's all about the same like um, LA is the same or whatever, but it's really not, not anymore. But like there are cities that we grow up in that culturally and socially the same. No, this is a very cosmopolitan city. And he's socially and culturally sophisticated. And it was, uh, it was very impressive. It was the home of the lighthouse of Alexandria, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It, and that, 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 that lighthouse was built 270 years before Christ. It was 400 feet high, one of the tallest structures on earth which lends to ministry why is that because he was aware of it he had seen it and he wasn't impressed by it when you look at uh, the life of a man named Demas he's mentioned in second Timothy chapter 4 Paul says concerning Demas that he loved this present age and when I was teaching in second Timothy I pointed out that Demas may may, may have been uh, somebody who didn't travel very much and so he was in ministry with Paul, and Paul would go to some great places, some ancient places that, that might impress somebody who would never seen much. And so he fell in love with this present age. He was so impressed by the structures, he was impressed by the people, he was impressed by so much. So it, it actually is a benefit if you've had the experience of growing up in a cosmopolitan place because you're capable of not being impressed by that. It's something you're familiar with. And that's how he would have been. A fourth thing it says, that he was mighty in the Scriptures. When it says he's mighty in the Scriptures, though he had been raised in Egypt, he had received in-depth instruction in the Old Testament. When it says he's mighty in Scriptures, he's an expert in the reading and interpretation of the Old Testament writings. That made him open to the gospel. It's very similar to Timothy himself, where Paul had said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So when he's pointing out that he's mighty in Scriptures, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you're saved in the same way. You're saved by faith. In the Old Testament, you're looking forward to Messiah. In the New Testament, you look back to the fact that he's come. He was saved in an Old Testament way. He was somebody who was prepared, like Timothy, to receive Messiah. He was eloquent, knowledgeable of Scripture, and was schooled in the Word of God. Notice again in verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That means he has a basic understanding of the mission of John the Baptist. He knew of the baptism of repentance. He knew Messiah was to come. But he did not know the death of Jesus, his resurrection, or of the sending of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know any of those things. You're going to see how that uh, plays out in a moment. It says also that he was fervent in spirit, and he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Fervent in spirit, teaching accurately. He's passionate. He's powerful. And when he spoke, he was accurate. That means he's a diligent and sincere student of the Word of God. And this is this young man. And I want you to see, because in verse 25 it says that he he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. He's saved in an Old Testament way, but he doesn't know that Christ has fulfilled the ministry that John had embarked on. You're going to see something similar when we get to chapter 19. So Paul had gone, he'd laid a foundation, and he had left. And he leaves behind this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And shortly after Paul has left, Aquila and Priscilla are in a synagogue. And Apollos enters in. And with all this fervor and zeal and this knowledge and, and all of this, he begins to share. And he's sharing the little that he knows. Notice verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So this is a man who took the, he was able to take the podium, and he was able to speak. But he's speaking really just the little that he knows. He's not able to speak concerning the fact of who Christ is, what Christ has done. He can't do that. He can speak concerning the fact that the Scriptures present Messiah. He can also speak concerning the fact that John the Baptist was preparing the way for the one who was to come, and that's how he's preaching. Now, you have to remember, this all is taking place um, years after, after Jesus had died, buried, and been resurrected. This is probably 20 years later. And they don't, he doesn't even realize That Jesus came and what he had done. And there you have Aquila and there you have Priscilla and they're sitting there listening. And this man with all the fire and all the eloquence and and all of that that he has going from his preaching. But they're taking note. And they see that he's incomplete in his knowledge. And so what happens? As he's preaching, notice verse 26, Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside explain to him the way of God more accurately. He's got zeal. He's got knowledge. He's persuasive. He's intellectual. He's respectable. He's got all of the fiery things that people love in a minister. He's got all of them. He probably was good-looking, too. He's got it all. But the response when they take him aside privately to speak to him To teach him. I want you to see this. His response to this reveals one of the most important earmarks of a man of God. When corrected, he had humility. He had the humility to receive further instruction. Now, that's precisely where many young and promising ministers fall most often. They think that because they have an audience and that people come and listen to them, They think that it's because of them and that they're very anointed. Because if I weren't anointed, people wouldn't show up. You see, even today, this has been true all along. If you have a lot of people, you must be saying something good. It's like when you go to a restaurant, if there's a long line to get in, it must be something good. And you go in and you join in with everybody else. And when they say this is good, you have a tendency of saying, yeah, it's pretty good. And I've seen that before. I've seen it where... They've had these very fancy restaurants selling uh, very expensive hamburgers, and and they'll walk up to them and say, how'd you like your burger? And and it's like a very expensive hamburger, and they'll say, oh, it's the best burger I've ever had. And it turns out it was a Burger King hamburger. (laughs) True story. I mean, that's really happened. That really does happen. Oh, it's the best burger I've ever eaten. You think it's the best burger you've ever eaten because it costs you so much. And other people are, are seated there with you in the restaurant, and they're all saying, that's the best burger I've ever eaten. And so there's this groupthink that we get caught up with. It's not hard to do. And you get caught up with this groupthink kind of thing. Well, they say it's good, and he said it's good, and it must be good. How is it? Oh, it's really good. Really, it's the best burger I've ever eaten. Yeah, it costs you $45. Oh, it's worth every bite. But you get one for $3 at Burger King. Oh, I didn't realize that. No. So that's what's happening here. And that's where a lot, and I'm going to get practical here, that's where a lot of young ministers make their biggest mistake. They think that because people listen to them, invite their friends, oh, come in hear the man of God, hear what he has to say. They think that it's because of them. I've been going through on Monday nights, I have a class that I'm doing with some some of the men in our church who who want to be further into ministry. Some want to be pastors, others just want to be equipped better for the service that they already do. And I I share these things with them. You know, popularity does not mean that you're right. Having a lot of people come and listen to you doesn't make you right. There are a thousand and one different reasons why people will come to a church. Whether it's closer, whether it's big, whether they like the preacher, there are a thousand reasons why people can come. And it's not because of you. And it's not really a healthy church if Jesus is in the center of it. And incomplete knowledge is not going to help people to know the Lord who fulfilled all those things that you haven't yet learned. And I think that very often what happens is they can fall prey to the outward, um, to outward success. The audience believes them to be anointed and the audience begins to praise them. But because their understanding is yet to be made complete, they can be preaching error and not even realize it. And because people keep showing up, error becomes accepted as the truth. Again, Apollos was educated. He was eloquent. He was cultured. He was religious. He was fervent. He was courageous. On the weight of his charisma and zeal, his ministry was a hit. People like this guy. He's so wise, so respectable, so eloquent, so courageous, so powerful. He spoke with such authority. And you've got this old couple sitting there listening to this zealous young man. And they're saying, while he gives a good presentation of the introduction, but he doesn't know the meat of what has happened, he needs to be taught. Even believers make choices of who they listen to based on sincerity of that person and his likability. And many young pastors have succumbed to this trap of pride. The scripture says that you're not to lay hands on any man suddenly lest you be a partaker of that man's sin. It says when you are putting a man into the office of pastor, bishop, of elder, Make sure that you don't put in a novice, lest he being puffed up by pride fall in the same condemnation of the devil himself. What is it that caused the devil to fall? The scripture tells us your heart was lifted up. It was pride. What is the key earmark of a genuine minister? Humility. What is the key to success? Humility. Humility. God puts down the proud, but he lifts up the humble. And if you can't be taught, you shouldn't be teaching. If, if that And I've seen it. If that person gets to think that everything he says is from Sinai, it's, it's all re- revelation, they become dangerous. They can fall in pride, and they will lead the people astray. And you have this old couple that have been serving God, an older couple, and they're watching this eloquent young man. And as they're listening, I can almost see him look at his wife, and she looks back at him. And there's that little head shake, like, hmm, he's got some growing to do. So what do they do? Well, He needs to be corrected. A key to spiritual growth is humility. But listen carefully, teacher. It's also the ability to receive instruction. The best teachers are always made up of the best students. You never reach the point of knowing everything. And so you look at me and you say, do you learn from people? I'm the exception. No, of course, I, of course I listen to people who've been there. Not just the older ones too, by the way. I listen to the younger ones because I can learn from their zeal. I can learn from their, their hunger. No, I'm not saying that, that people like me, I've been at it for a while. No, you will always be learning, and you should have that attitude. And you never become the fount of all wisdom. And some of you may, you don't know my ministry style. Let me explain it quickly. You'll notice if you're here for a while, I give you cross-references constantly. Why is that? Because if I stand up here just kind of saying loosely, you know what the Word of God says, what happens over time is I become the Word of God. So you'll say, well, Pastor David, no, Proverbs says, or Genesis says, Isaiah said, Luke says. Why is that? Because I want all of us to know that we receive the same information from the same God. And you have to have that. How did I learn that? In the Army. When I was in the military, I was in a place in a a group called the Navigators. The Navigators taught us Scripture and its importance and even to memorize it. And so that laid the foundation. Now, my pastor Chuck taught that way. But I came out of the Navigators giving proof texts. This is where it says that. This is where it says that. So the key to spiritual growth is humility and the ability to receive instruction. Proverbs 18, 2. A fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. And so, Aquila and Priscilla are present. there in the synagogue. They're listening to this eloquent, courageous, fervent young man. And all of that is important. I, I, I've shared with young pastors before one of the worst things you can do is be boring when you're giving the Word of God. The Word of God isn't boring, but I can be, and I have to be aware of that. And so, Aquila are there. They're present in the synagogue. Apollos comes into the services. He's boldly sharing with the people, and they're listening to him as he's teaching. But as mature believers, they're concerned with his content. So, what do they do? Did they interrupt him as he was speaking? No. There was a Calvary pastor whose wife was in the congregation, true story, and he made a statement, and she corrected him in church. She says, oh, no, no, she had a study Bible. She said, so-and-so says, this is what that scripture means, in church. And I told Marie, honey, don't do that again. (laughs) It's so embarrassing, baby. Now, what did they do? They took him aside, which is the best thing. They didn't just walk up to him and say, you know what? What you were saying is incomplete. Let me, they did not do that. He would have rejected them immediately because not only is the person who's being corrected, not not only is it necessary that they have humility, but the one who corrects also needs to have humility. And so they waited and they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God. It says more accurately, In Proverbs 1, verse 5, a wise man will hear and increase learning. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel. So that's the key to Apollos eventually being used greatly by the Lord. In Proverbs 9, verses 8 and 9, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser." Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. An individual who cannot be taught should not be teaching. An individual who becomes the emblem of all that is wise and good is a dangerous person. If that person cannot be corrected, you ask, have you been corrected? Yes, of course I have, and I kicked him out of the church. No, I... (laughs) Yes, I have, of course. Of course. Why wouldn't I have been? Because if I don't teach accurately and correctly, then I'm influencing people in the wrong direction. Now, some people don't care. They say, you know what? I enjoyed church. They haven't grown enough to realize that there is truth and there's error. They haven't grown up yet. They just liked and were entertained by this, this person, like when Ezekiel was told by the Lord, Son of Man, they speaking about you. They're standing on street corners and they're saying, come and hear what the man of God has to say. And they come, he says, and they sit before you. He said, they sit before you like they're my people. But he said, but they're not my people. He says, you know, you've become like a man who sings well and plays an instrument beautifully. They like your voice. They like your style. They like you. And they say, come and hear what he has to say. So even bringing people in. But son of man, they, they sit before you as my people, but they're not my people. Well, what do you mean they're not my people? He says, because they hear, but they do not do. They hear, but they do not do. One of the ways for you to know whether you're growing is are you doing what the Word of God says. That's how you know. But if you're always putting it on the back burner saying, oh, I'll think about that some other time. Or if it convicts you, as it has with me, and you start making up excuses as to why it's okay to be this way right now. They hear what they don't do. And so as they took him aside, they began to speak to him. They begin to explain to him. Again, Apollos is a spiritual model. He's a model of hunger and maturity. Again, many think that they've arrived. They need nothing more. Proverbs 19, verse 20 says, Listen to counsel, receive instruction, that you may be wise in your latter days. Some of the things that you learn when you're young and you put into practice when you're young become the things that are foundational for you when you're older. Now, this is a man, and I'll close with a few thoughts. This is a man that was very superior to Aquila and Priscilla. We already were introduced to Aquila. He was a tent maker. He wasn't a theologian. But this zealous, eloquent, and passionate man listened to someone who had the wisdom to instruct him. And he listened to what they had to say to him. And as he, as he did so, he grew. It says that they explained to him the way of God more accurately. They filled in the gaps of his understanding so that it now made greater sense. Oh, you mean John the Baptist was a forerunner? Yes. And then he had preached... A a baptism of repentance, yes. But he was preparing the people for the Messiah who was to come, yes. And the Messiah has come, yes. And his name is Jesus, absolutely. And he was born of a virgin, gave him all of the gospel, filled it in, yes. He did miracles, many teachings, they filled him in, yes. Yes. But he was crucified and died. That's what happened to him. And he was buried. Absolutely. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Yes. And he ascended to heaven 40 days later. Yes. He sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And a church was born. Yes. There are churches all around. Yes. Okay. And they filled him in, and now he knows that all that he's been preaching about has already been fulfilled. He was saved in the Old Testament way, looking forward to Messiah. He wasn't an unsaved man. He was looking forward to Messiah. But now he comes to a full knowledge of what salvation is by believing in the one who came. And so, verse 27, when he desired to cross to Achaia and go back up into northern Greece, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. There was a time when you actually had letters of recommendation. And so they wrote a letter of recommendation for this young man. They didn't just pop into house churches and preach. He had to have recommendation. So they they wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So now he understands the grace of God. He vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing faith from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. With his added knowledge, he went beyond the ministry of John. He pointed people to Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one whom John had been pointing to. And Apollos was greatly used, and Apollos became a very powerful preacher of the gospel of grace. And one last thought, he was so popular that Paul had a right in 1 Corinthians to the church and had to say, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ because some of you guys are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus. And division has occurred in the church there in Corinth because you have made personality qualification for salvation, holding to different people when, in fact, you should be holding to Jesus. That's how powerful Apollos became, where the people began to prefer him over the apostle Paul because this man was eloquent, he was powerful, he was knowledgeable, but he ultimately said, I'm just a servant. I serve the same master that you do. I serve Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. He had to learn that this Lord had already come. but The Corinthian church had to relearn that. And Paul had to write them to correct them because they had a way of lifting man up instead of Jesus. And that's why Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I determined to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want you to know the true Savior and not to become somebody who's enamored by people with personality. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.